you will open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 7. For those of you who are visiting, we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the inspired and authoritative word of the true and living God. And it is our practice to preach through books of the Bible. And so we are making our way through Acts. We have been uh, examining Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin these last several weeks. As, as we find it uh, laid out for us in Acts chapter 7. And as we have been looking at Stephen's defense, we've also simultaneously surveyed in a quick fashion the first five books of the Bible. As Stephen has used Israel's history as a setting for his defense. And there's one common theme that we have seen each week, and that is the riches of God's mercy against the backdrop of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts towards God. So this week, Stephen is going to direct our attention to the tabernacle that God instructed the Israelites to construct. Stephen here in our passage calls it the tent of witness. And as Israel moved uh, into the moved into the land of Canaan, eventually they replaced the tabernacle with the temple and built the temple temple uh, to be permanently um, built there in Jerusalem. And at this point, I want to remind you of this charge that was originally brought before Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, we read that they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, talking about the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, Stephen's defense here at this point uh, in our reading this morning is that God is too great and too glorious to dwell in a house built by human man, by human hands. And furthermore, Stephen knows this is not just an intellectual matter. He knows that, uh, that he's not simply having an intellectual dispute with the Sanhedrin who are bringing these charges against him. Rather, he knows that this um, is a, a matter of the heart. That the Sanhedrin's hearts, in, this, in their hearts, they hate God. And so they are not going to hear um, Stephen's defense. They hate God, and so they are going to hate Stephen. And so with that, hear the passage, Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 53. Stephen says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations or dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of 
house will you build for me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen continues, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we have read Your Word, so I pray that You would give us circumcised hearts, circumcised ears, if You will, that we might not only hear Your Word, but believe it and obey it and flee to our Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and in death. We pray in His name. Amen. We've seen Stephen's defense, or rather heard it. And his, the first point that I want to draw your attention to this morning is that God is too great and glorious to dwell in a house built by human hands. And what I wanted to do this morning is I want us to examine this point, but instead of going uh, line by line by what Stephen's saying, I want to look at his larger point. And his larger point is that God is bigger than any house uh, could contain. That He is so glorious that He will not and cannot dwell in a a house built uh, by human hands. In other words, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at God. And I want us to see some of His attributes, some of His character traits this morning. On the back of your bulletin, you see that I listed five of uh, God's character traits. And I, was, I thought I was limiting myself to, to only list five. Uh, but I realize... That uh, just like on Thursday, when I was looking at all that food that my wife had prepared, and I piled my plate so high that I could not uh, then have the obligatory um, second helping, uh, because I, my my eyes were more optimistic than my belly. So likewise, uh, the sermon, I was too optimistic to think that we could look at five of God's attributes this morning. So we will only look at two, and only in a very cursory way at that. So the first attribute that I want to look at this morning as I direct your attention to God is the solitariness of God, or God is solitary. What do I mean by that when I say God is solitary? By speaking of God being solitary, I mean that He is self-contained, that He is self-sufficient, that He is in need of nothing. Genesis 1.1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God. There was a time, and it's hard for us to grasp, there was a time when there was no heaven, when there was no earth, where there were no angels, there was no universe, there was nothing, there was no one 
but God. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, said, had, an, had a universe or angels or humans been necessary to God in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity. The universe was not called into existence from all eternity. Heaven was not called into existence from all eternity. Angels were not called into existence from all eternity. Human beings were not called into existence. We are not necessary to God. He is self-contained. And He is under no obligation. Or He was no under no obligation to create. God did not need to create us. God was perfectly happy from all eternity. He enjoyed His self-existence. The triune God existed from all eternity. He enjoyed Himself from eternity past. He was never lonely. He was never bored. He never had a feeling of a sense of need. God exists. He is self-contained. God did not, nor does He now, need us or anything else in all His creation. God is self-sufficient. Romans 11, verses 34 and 35 asks this question. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? In other words, God does not need His creation. And the creation, as glorious as it is, as wonderful as it is, adds nothing to God's essential being. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Human beings, according to the Bible, are the highest and most important creatures in all God's creation. And no act of humanity, nothing we can do as human beings, is more important than our gathering together to worship Him. Yet, our worship... The worship we offer up to Him this morning, the worship we offer up to Him in private, the worship that we offer up to Him over, the, over our lifetimes, all cumulatively together adds nothing to God's essential being. He is all glorious. He has all glory in Himself. How can our worship then add to His glory? This also means... That our lack of worship cannot subtract from His glory. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and your mind is on family who's been in town. Or on upcoming assignments that that are awaiting you at work. Maybe your minds are on dodo birds, whatever they are. And you're, you're not thinking about God. Does that subtract from His essential glory? No, of course not. He is all glorious. He doesn't need our worship. So why do we worship? Because He's all glorious. It is right for we as His creatures to declare His worth. It is right and it is truthful 
to cry out that He is glorious. We worship Him because He is glorious. We bring Him glory in our worship. Not because it adds to Him, but because He already has all glory in Himself. A.W. Pink nicely sums up what I'm trying to say. He says, God is solitary in His majesty, unique in His excellency, peerless in His perfections. He sustains all, but is Himself independent of all. He gives to all and is enriched by none. Such a God cannot be found out by searching. He can only be known as He is revealed to the heart by the Holy Spirit through His Word. God is solitary. He is independent of His creation. God is also immutable. There's another big word. What does immutable mean? This means that when we speak of God's immutability, it's an attribute of God that we are slow to grasp. And I think we're slow to grasp it because we, are change, we as human beings are constantly changing. Immutability means that God does not change. But here we are as human beings. We are continually getting older. You are older now than when you entered into this worship service. Um, we're always, hopefully, growing more mature. We're always expanding our knowledge, becoming more wise. We have bad days, and then we have good days. We get sick sometimes, and then we are healthy sometimes. We get tired sometimes, and then we get rest. We change our minds. We change our attitudes. That is part of who we are as human beings. But God never changes. Immutability means, God's immutability means that He never changes. Our catechism sums it up like this. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A.W. Pink says, There never was a time when God was not. There will never come a time when He shall cease to be. God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that He is today, He has ever been and ever will be. Malachi sums it all up very nicely. God says, I the Lord do not change. Malachi 3.6 What does this mean for us? It means that we can always count on God's love for us, never changing. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. The fact that God does not change also means that His mercies will never run out. Lamentations 3, 22-24 says, Because of the, of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. His mercies or His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that good news? 
and we can know because God never changes. He will always be faithful to His promises. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not human that He should not... God is not human that He should lie. Not a human being that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? You can rely on God completely. You can't rely on any human being. Mankind is feeble, weak, and, and, and fickle. But God changes not. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. You can always rely on His promises. In fact, He is an anchor for your soul. When the circumstances of life are storming around you. Listen to Isaiah 54 verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isn't that good news? Think about God's immutability in relation to prayer. What if we had a God who changed His mind? What if we had a God who is as fickle as we are? What hope, what confidence could we have in prayer? I submit to you very little. In fact, the Puritan Stephen Charnock in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, says this, What comfort would it be to pray to a God that, like a chameleon, changed color every moment? Who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable or changeable as to grant a petition one day and then deny it another? That is not the God we worship. The God we worship is unchangeable and he is unfailingly faithful to all of his promises our God is great our God even though we don't recognize it sometimes and and easily forget it he is solitary he is immutable he is glorious he is bigger than our minds can fathom Israel's great sin was to forget who God was. God revealed Himself in the Scriptures and yet they kept trying to redefine Him and try and make God more like themselves. As we talked about last week, they made the golden calf because they wanted a God that they could could say that they fashioned with their own hands. They wanted a God whom they could control. Well, the God of the Bible cannot be controlled by any human being. The God of the Bible, if it is your desire to have a God you control, can, can, can control, the God of the Bible will probably look very scary to you because He cannot be controlled. He is not under constraint to humankind. He is under constraint to His unchanging and unfailing um, attributes. He 
he does as he pleases. I wish we had time to go into God's omniscience, His sovereignty, His supremacy. But I need to um, transition now into the second half of Stephen's speech in verses 51 through 53. And I want to ask this question. If the God of the Bible is who He says He is, if He is this great... If He is this glorious, if He is this faithful, if He is this merciful, if He is this committed to His own goodness, why would Israel continually reject Him? Why would they continually push Him away? Well, the short answer is that humanity has fallen. In Adam's fall, we send all. And the reality is that fallen human beings do not like God. He is too holy to be loved by fallen or unregenerate hearts. Stephen described Israel's problem in verses 51 through 53. And I want you to listen as I read it. Because Israel's problem is our problem. In verse 51... He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. First of all, Stephen said to the Sanhedrin that they were stiff-necked. This meant that they were stubbornly resistant to God. And not only were they stubbornly resistant to God, look at the end of verse 51. In verse 51, he, at the end, he says, As did your fathers, so do you. In other words, all of Israel from their very existence were stiff-necked. In Deuteronomy 9, just before the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the, into the land of Canaan, God made sure that He told the Israelites it was not because they were a righteous people that they were given this land to possess. In Deuteronomy 9, verses 5 and 6, God says, It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, why is He driving... Why is he leading them into the promised land? Because he swore to their, his forefathers, to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be faithful to his promises. And then he says, Understand that it, then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. From their very birth as a nation, they were stiff-necked. Throughout their history, they were stiff-necked. And so Stephen knows that he is preaching to a stiff-necked people as he's preaching to the the, uh, Jewish religious leaders. 
They were not only stiff-necked, they were also uncircumcised in their heart and ears. This is another way of saying that they were dead in their sins. Their hearts were unable to trust God because they were so stubbornly resistant to God. They so disliked God that then they were unable to hear the notes of God's mercy and God's calls for them to repent. God was calling, but their rebellion was so thoroughgoing that they would not and they could not come to Him. And so Stephen sums up. He says, You always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your forefathers did. You always resist Him. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 30. God says, For many years I was patient with you, and by my Spirit I warned you through my prophets, yet you paid no attention. A.W. Pink says, Since the palate of man's Since the palate of man is corrupted, divine things are unsavory to him and forever remain so until his taste is restored by divine grace. They were stiff-necked, they were uncircumcised in their hearts and their ears. Not only that, they were at war with God. They weren't simply passively resistant to God. They were actively at war with God. They actively hated God. And so that's what he says in verses 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your father did your fathers perse- did your did not your fathers persecute? The Israelites persecuted the prophets. They killed those who announced the Messiah's coming. They conspired against the Messiah. They murdered him on the cross. Why did they do that? Because they hated God. Fallen man would kill God if he were given the chance. That was me. It took me a long time to reconcile myself to the fact that I would kill God given the chance that I had that kind of wickedness in me that I had that kind of hatred toward God in me that Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18 was true about me but when I reconciled myself to that fact and realized that I did not deserve to be saved I also at the very same moment realized that God was not on my string, that He was not my bellhop jumping at my beck and call, that He was the God of the universe who was being merciful to me. My entire perspective changed. How do you view yourself? Let me ask this as I draw the sermon to a conclusion. How would you expect God to act if you chose a people to yourself and yet their entire history they were stubbornly rebellious to Him? 
They resisted his mercy. They rejected his word. And they hated his very existence. How would you expect God to act toward them? Let me ask this. What if you were God? How would you have treated the Israelites? Here's how God acted toward them. He so loved them that He gave His Son to be their Savior. Let's stop talking about the Israelites. Because you were stubbornly rebellious to Him. You resisted His mercy. You rejected His word. You hated His existence. And if you were outside of Jesus Christ, that is true of you today. So how should God treat you? The good thing is, the good news is, God is not human like us. God loves sinners. While we were His enemies, Christ died for us. For God so loved sinners that He sent His only Son. Isn't that good news? How is your relationship with God this morning? Are you hiding from Him because of your sin? He knows all things. I would have addressed that had we had time to look at His omniscience. How is your relationship with God? I want to, I want to declare to you God's, God's attitude toward you. He loves sinners. So much that He sent His only Son. Will you come to Him this morning? And if you have come to Him, remember the mercy that you have received from Him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we have endeavored to place ourselves underneath Stephen's preaching it has been a humbling experience but God in being humbled we see afresh and anew your grace and your mercy toward us God I pray that you would renew us with these with this fresh thought of your love toward us, of your mercy toward us, and of your glory and your supremacy, your majesty, your solidariness, your immutability. God, protect us from redefining you in human terms. God, I ask that you would help us to keep you on the throne of our lives and that we would continually live in humility before you. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.